0: Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics podcast. Could you please introduce yourself?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm Josh Wolper, a fourth year PhD student in computer graphics at the University of Pennsylvania. And over the last few years, I've been mostly focusing on physically based animation and more specifically uh, simulating material fracture. So over the last couple of years, I've explored how we can augment the material point method with various approaches to fracture from the engineering community.
0: Mm -hmm, Wonderful. Thanks so much for joining us, Josh.
1: I would like to go
0: back when you were a child. Do you have any members who were interested in science or technology as a kid?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, ever since I was a kid, I've been so excited by nature and physics. And I've kind of dabbled in a lot of different areas of the sciences. I loved robotics and machine learning and computer graphics, where I am now. Um, And I've always been just so inspired by nature. And I think that's kind of how I landed in physical simulation Um, because it gives us this ability to try and model the natural world um, in this really exciting way, both for beautiful visuals and for uh, scientific computing and these real-world problems that we can use uh, numerical modeling for.
0: So for inspiration, where do you get inspiration mostly from nature? Is it from, like, a creature you look for or intelligence in animal or human? If you can give an example of that. Yeah,
1: absolutely. It's interesting. I think I've been probably mostly inspired by the physical world. You know, I remember in high school just being mystified by fluid dynamics and watching uh, creamer swirl in coffee and watching these like beautiful vortices and whatnot. Um, and I even kind of sought to do projects on the intersection of art and technology and um And I think that's kind of why simulation just resonates with me, because we can make turn the natural world into this beautiful thing while also solving these really hard-hitting problems.
0: So how do you define simulation? If I ask you, how do you define simulation from your experience?
1: Yeah, so I guess it all hinges on taking some underlying understanding of the world that we have and turning that into a discretization that allows a computer to actually model this happening so, for example, um, in what I do, we take kind of the underlying understanding of fracture that we have from you know, engineering and mechanics, and we actually apply that to uh, different discretizations or we discretize it with different approaches, so like MPM versus FEM, uh, and it allows a computer to actually time step through this, um, you know, these differential equations that govern these um, processes. Uh, and it really just comes down to how we can actually allow a computer to time-step through it. That's what simulation is to me.
0: And I think maybe the question resonates with many students. Which level of modeling or understanding you need to develop a simulation? So you mentioned the example of understanding maybe the fracture in material. So which are maybe level you have to go for to understand the real physics happening and the phenomena you want to simulate?
1: Yeah, so I guess it kind of depends on the sector that you're coming from. So if you're in, you know, scientific computing, for example, maybe you really, really value real world accuracy and you want Mm -hmm. the physical underlying uh, things that you're simulating to be as close to our understanding of the natural world as possible. Whereas in something like graphics, we kind of have some flexibility because we value uh, the look of something rather than, you know, the real world accuracy of it. We want it to look and feel real and oftentimes that means an animator kind of will embellish the real world uh, physics to look a little cartoony or overdrawn or, you know etc so that uh, it actually has like emotion and has like an impact visually. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really depends on kind of the context and what you're aiming for and what's really exciting to me about NPM is the ability to kind of use it in both of those areas.
0: Mm-hmm. So maybe you can first of all, because we are speaking about soft robotics, if you can tell us what's actually material point is, is material point method.
1: Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. So the material point method is a hybrid technique for simulating continuum materials. And it was developed as far back as like 1950s, but didn't really make a splash in computing until the late 80s. And it's just been improving ever since. And it's really just this cool method because of its ability to model solids, liquids, gases, and really anything uh, physically, uh, any physical continuum material. And excitingly, it's also useful, again, not only for the, making these beautiful physically-based animations, but can also be applied in more real-world applications like predicting gravitational hazards, uh, like some recent works on predicting avalanches in the cryosciences and uh, in geoscience for modeling landslides. And I really love this application to scientific computing and this real-world modeling. And in the past 10 years alone, we've seen MPM successfully uh, simulate everything from phase change to continuum foams. And now in my current works, fracture uh, fracture and smashing materials. Um, So it's this really versatile method. um, And it's a hybrid method. Maybe we can talk about that later.
0: So do you remember what is the first simulation you did?
1: Uh, Yeah, actually. (laughs) So... Uh, I guess it really would be. My first simulation was Material Point Method. I'm actually fairly new to simulation um, and physically-based animation. I really kind of got into it in my PhD work. I didn't have as much of an opportunity to delve into it in my undergrad studies. So my first... (laughs) I kind of had a big uh, challenge ahead of me getting into simulation, because MPM is not exactly uh, light learning, and has a lot of um, pieces, and there's a lot of continuum physics and... uh, Lot of mathematics that I wasn't familiar with, so it was kind of daunting going into it. But um, I did start out actually learning directly from my advisor this method, though, uh, Chen Fan Fujang, and he's one of the most incredible um, people I've worked with. And just his dedication to the material point method and physical simulation um, is wonderful, and his passion for it's infectious. So I think that really helped facilitate this intimidating thing into being like a wonderful experience. And it's just been wonderful ever since.
0: I think the a question related, what is the most beautiful and simple profound equation inspires you? And related to this question, because when you mentioned working on, in simulation, how you capture the most significant parameter you have to consider your simulation? Because sometimes physics is so complicated, especially when you're working with nonlinear material. So um, what does maybe the equation inspire you? And what could be a significant parameter you think is very crucial for the simulation of the material simulation in general?
1: Yeah, so I think, I mean, it all comes, I don't want to be trite, but it all comes back to Newton's second law, f equals ma, just, um, you know, that relationship between force and mass and acceleration. And also um, conservation of momentum is really big in uh, MPM. And really, that's kind of the number one thing we try to preserve. We try to preserve mass, and we try to preserve momentum uh, when we're transferring yeah. to and from um, this grid underlying the simulation. Uh, and we really want to, I think that's what's exciting about MPM, because it's seeking to really capture the real-world physics and preserve mass, pre- preserve momentum. Um, yeah. And even though these are like kind of concepts and equations are so simple and elegant, we like c- couldn't even begin to model dynamic systems without these. I'm sure that's um, that applies to robotics as well, right?
0: And what do you think may be the most significant parameters you have to consider as well for modeling material in MBM?
1: Yeah, so when we're simulating a material, it really comes down to, I mean, it's so cool. We have all of this physical data um, that's been measured already. We know the physical properties of so many materials. We know like Young's modulus and Poisson ratios. Um, modeling how like stiff a material is, and how much it resists shear, and all these yeah. different things. Um, so what's exciting about MPM is you can use those real-world parameters um, that, that kind of describe and govern the behavior of these materials, and just throw them right into MPM and have them behaving pretty much like the real-world um, equivalents. Um, but what is funny, actually, in animation, because I publish mostly in SIGGRAPH, it's really the graphics side. Um, what's funny is when we do our simulations, we actually simulate them as very small. So, like everything that you've seen in my work is pretty much simulated, not real world scale. It's simulated in like a unit cube. Um, and because of that uh, small scale that we're working with, uh, we sometimes have to just play around with the parameters. And we're not necessarily using real world parameters uh, right. for that uh, specific application. But the cool thing is, you can. And um, I'm, you know, I've worked with um, Johan Gohm over at EPFL, who uh, does cryoscience and modeling avalanches. Um, you know, he has this really exciting paper on literally lining up um, the NPM modeling of avalanches with real-world data of avalanches. And we're learning more about these kinds of gravitational hazards through that real-world meeting of, these, um, of the real-world data and the real-world, or real-world parameters being fed into the simulation.
0: I think this is a really interesting point about the scaling because you mentioned you don't go to the real uh, scale. So maybe is it is there's a challenging for uh, considering real uh, parameter of the material? Is there's a challenge?
1: Yeah. So in so when you're trying to make it look good for graphics, maybe uh, you're just gonna do kind of like a search through the parameter space to see what kind of looks best to you. Um, but in terms of using like real world parameters, I think you can. For the most part go right to liter- like the engineering and mechanics literature and pick um, parameters out of there. You know, of course there's kind of like a margin of error on measured properties, and then of course we have to contend with the fact that materials are not homogeneous and don't have like consistently perfect structures. Um, and that's kind of another thing, these like micro scale um, interactions that NPM's not really seeking to uh, model in any way. So Yeah, it's kind of interesting because I think I've seen MPM used mostly for kind of like real world scale things and then also for like mesoscale, like larger things. So like, um, you know, a patch of snow on a hill or like a section of mud and rocks for like a landslide simulation, that kind of thing. So it has like that larger, um, larger world like application. And a lot of those materials already have well-documented material properties um, so I think that that's pretty straightforward. Like you can really, when we've um, sought to model like ice or, you know, glacier ice or whatnot, you can really go to the literature and grab those.
0: I think maybe if there's argument here. Someone asked you about um, whether maybe FEA can maybe predict the the performance of the material. Since in MBM, it sounds challenging. Do you agree with that? Or do you think you still have better result using MBM over FEA?
1: Hmm. yeah I mean they really each have their own limitations and each have their like really exciting uh things that you get from um from leveraging these methods um I think one of the biggest challenges to FEM is probably its you know reliance on the mesh so you really um have to be Uh, worried about mesh consistency and mesh cutting and if you have any type of topology change that can be really difficult. Um, So of course for something like fracture that can be a huge problem um, to have to actually track that branching and evolving crack topology in like not real time but it's computationally expensive to do those mesh cuts and a lot of literature has gone into exploring how we can do um, like faster FEM fracture. But the cool thing about MPM, at least in the sector of fracture, um, is we can kind of adopt this continuum damage mechanics approach of actually modeling cracks as like this uh, smeared crack approach. So, And what we mean by that is that every particle um, in an MPM simulation will have a damage value. And as it's determined by the damage model that particles are getting damaged, Um, eventually you'll have like the cracks uh, looking like a smeared out region, a nicely blended region of damage that goes up to like fully damaged. And so you know at these fully damaged regions that the material uh, should be separating under tension. And then we're able to actually just basically tell those damaged particles to contribute less to the elasticity of the material. So it's kind of like this elasto- damage coupling that allows us to do fracture in MPM. Whereas in FEM, uh, they're actually looking at the stresses and whatnot at the crack tip, uh, which is a lot more requires you to rigorously have the exact location of that crack tip right through explicitly tracking the surface um, and the topology change is just so difficult in FEM but at the same time they both really have quite a bit of computational intensity to them as methods. Um, I think they're they both have uh, they're both kind of known as being very uh, time-intensive methods. And I know NPM especially is space-intensive. It uses um, quite a few um, different structures to store all of this data. And, you know, successful simulations can have multiple millions of particles. So these matrices and vectors that we're storing data in are just going to get bigger and bigger.
0: That's interesting. So coming to robotics, because I think what you're doing is, uh, is really correlated with soft robotics research. So how, first of all, you define soft robotics in simulation perspective if you want to simulate soft robot.
1: Yeah, I mean, soft robotics, is, I've always kind of just seen it in passing a little bit. I'm not as familiar with it, but it's so exciting to me, especially because it's so inspired by nature and what we see in nature and trying to emulate um, naturally evolved motion um, and actually leverage that um, for, you know, technology. It's so incredible to me. Yeah. Um, and I'm just kind of so excited by the potential of it. And one of the things we actually uh, were gonna do when I was working on NISO MPM, we did develop this anisotropic elasticity model, um, and we we're really excited about trying to apply that actually to like a robotic actuator that would be able to extend and then like refurl uh, based on the pressure inside, um, and based on the anisotropic elasticity of that material. Um, so um, unfortunately we didn't get a chance to do that demo because of like our SIGGRAPH deadline, but I feel like the application for that is so exciting to me. I mean, and I think that any, uh, field that has sort of these embodied agents like robotics, um, can benefit from the addition of a simulation layer. And, um, you know, even anisotropic damage can be really useful to that, uh, Simulation layer because then you can avoid you know trashing your hardware. <laughs> you can simulate whether a material is going to fail before you actually go and build it.
0: Yeah, I think uh, that's also interesting. What I would like to ask here again about isotropic damages and anisotropic damages because I think and sometimes it's challenging to simulate nonlinear material with like anisotropic material for example and, and also nonlinear. So if you can first all differentiate what significant difference between isotropic and anisotropic damages in simulation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And so it's actually kind of interesting because my paper from last year, so CDMPM, uh, was all about this isotropic damage. uh, And we had two kind of approaches to isotropic damage. Uh, The first was this Uh, phase field damage approach where we have this kind of non-local system that we're solving. And it's actually uh, the underlying uh, fracture physics is inspired by um, these underlying fracture equations that then we can actually discretize into a system to update uh, damage over time. Um, And that is actually the same approach that we took in NISO-MPM. But really, the main difference between isotropic fracture and anisotropic fracture in these two uh, methods is the addition of uh, structural tensors. And so these structural tensors actually allow us to encode the material directionality. And so every particle in the NPM simulation in an iso-MPM has an understanding of its intrinsic direction and so for so for transverse isotropy it has just one principal direction that is either stronger or weaker than all the other directions um, orthogonal to it whereas we can have something like orthotropy where we have two different or i guess actually three orthogonal directions that can each have a different material response Um, and so Mm -hmm. these structural tensors either encode one axis or two axes because we get the third one for free from orthogonality um, and effectively, every particle has a sense of its either one direction of strength or two directions of strength, and that can actually allow the uh, material properties to be weakened accordingly based on that um, interaction. Um, you know, based on just the normal uh, simulation stuff that we're doing, it allows it to actually pick up the directionality from the incorporation of these uh, tensors, and we're able to degrade the material directly. Um, through the kind of the same mechanism that we were in CDMPM, but what's interesting is back in CDMPM we also developed a plasticity technique. Um, so it was we were inspired by actually the cohesive cam clay plasticity model by uh, Johan Gohm. So that was used for the avalanche modeling I mentioned before, and we were inspired by that uh, yield surface uh, and we made it non-associated. Uh, which allows us to preserve volume better, and we actually found that just modeling plasticity alone was able to allow us to model these, like, really explosive, debris-laden fractures just from treating the material almost as, like, soil. And this plasticity model was originally developed for modeling soil and clay. Um, But we found that applying it even to, like, a watermelon allows it to, like, have this really explosive isotropic damage response. through actually tracking the plastic dissipation and deformation and whatnot. In anisotropic damage is a little bit more tricky because we don't really have too many anisotropic plasticity models that we know of, Um, but plasticity has been sort of leveraged a little bit um, to try and model plastic um, anisotropic flow. And so it'd be exciting actually to see if we could develop those kind of anisotropic plastic regimes so that we could just use a plasticity model um, for anisotropic fracture
0: that's interesting indeed. And I think I, I don't know if that's true. I think if you apply like if you have non-uniform stress applied or or forces in the material, it calls plasticity. And
1: yeah, when yeah. we when we model plasticity, what we're effectively doing, at least in NPM, is we're seeing uh, where a particle's stress is in space and if it's determined that that stress is beyond. Uh, what we call a yield surface, it's outside the yield surface, then we try and map it back into the yield surface, and the amount that we're mapping it back to the surface uh, not only ensures that it's back into its like elastic stress state, but we can use the amount that we're mapping it and the direction we're mapping it to actually model the plastic dissipation that we would associate with that deformation. So we're able to also model the plastic deformation through return mapping. Uh, which is really exciting because it allows for um, things like you know the avalanche modeling and our debris-laden fracture we actually in our lab have a project going on i'm not as involved with it on um, that kind of design problem where you take constraints and try and design um, materials and structures based on those constraints and i think absolutely it'd be a really it's actually i think a really exciting application of niso mpm to try and use that um, damage simulation as a guide or constraint for designing materials or designing shapes of materials and different um, you know, different shapes of actuators or whatnot, um, I think that's actually a really exciting application for sure.
0: So if you can tell us about the challenges, you challenges you face in simulating uh, maybe material in NBM, what could be the real challenge you face?
1: Yeah, so okay, one of the I'd say there's like two main challenges to NPM. The first being uh, modeling extremely stiff materials can be computationally really intensive um, because of our CFL limit on how big of a time step we can take uh, when materials are really stiff. Um, And so oftentimes, if we want to model something super stiff, like for example, in an ISO MPM, we modeled um, some bone fractures and bone, of course, is a super stiff material. And we actually did model that with extremely high stiffness, um, unlike a lot of other demos we've done. And those demos took a long time to run, because we were required to take these really small time steps, um, especially in explicit NPM specifically, rather than implicit NPM. Yeah. Um, and that uh, limitation can really slow down progress. Um, so for example, if you wanted to model something like brittle fracture, you'd very likely need to have some way of like, allowing larger time steps, so maybe you use implicit MPM, But also implicit npm kind of has its own problems, um, not associated to time. But also kind of associated to time because you're solving a huge system in implicit npm, and sometimes that can be more intensive than just using a smaller time step with explicit npm. Uh, so it really yeah. varies. It's really kind of an art, as I've learned. <laughs> and um, So I'd say the second problem. Um, In modeling at least npm fracture, I'm making this all very in that context, um, is that npm has problems with strong discontinuities in velocity fields. So if you want to have two materials, or you want to tear a material in half, at that fracture, um, npm has trouble actually modeling the velocity going one way and then the velocity going the other way right at that interface. And that's actually due to this um, kind of interpolation we're doing to blend Um, physical properties onto a background grid. Um, And so this is the hybrid hybrid part of this method, as I mentioned. So it's hybrid in the sense that we're simulating a material as a set of points, um, but we're actually kind of blending their physical properties onto a background grid. And then doing some computations on the background grid because the background grid enables us to discretize all of these governing equations uh, really nicely because it's an Eulerian grid and it's you know there's a lot of um, very direct ways to discretize things on an Eulerian grid and then after we're done you know updating forces and velocities uh, we can actually transfer those back to the particles at the end Um, And so it's this blending step to and from the grid that actually makes it really hard to do really discontinuous velocities. Um, And so that's another uh, kind of obstacle to pretty much any type of MPM simulation where you want things to have extremely sharp um, cracks or extremely sharp. Uh, interfaces or just extremely sharp topology, I guess, because FEM was really kind of the main tool for fracture simulation for a long time, and it, I mean it still is really. Um, even in the engineering and mechanics communities, uh, most of the papers I see are um, in FEM because it's uh, it's a great method. Like I can't, you know, <laughs> I really can't yeah. say it's not like MPM versus FEM, but they're both great in their own ways, you know, for different fields. Um, but FEM does, yeah, really struggle with the reliance on the mesh because we have to do all of that cutting and remeshing, um, yeah. is so intensive. And I think also, kind of just on top of it, FEM, you know, you have to handle collisions, and that's really intensive, and self contact, and inversion, and like all these things related to the mesh. And on top of it, it's a total Lagrangian formulation, so all of your deformations are in terms of your original um, geometry. And so that actually makes really large deformations also kind of difficult, Um, but of course, there's been a lot of research and engineering work kind of trying to alleviate that. Um, But yeah, MPM gets a lot of that stuff for free. We get multi-material simulation for free, we get contact for free, uh, get large deformations, topology change, all these things kind of just totally intrinsic to the method and kind of intrinsic to having this Lagrangian view of the material uh, rather than the mesh, you know.
0: So I think the point about handling logitability change, I think that's something also in, in MBM is maybe easier than FEM yeah. as well, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. So maybe also a question here um, about the size of the computation and the power of computation as well, what do you mentioned, and I think also in FEM, we have this issue. And sometimes maybe model order reduction is used in that case. Do you think that technique, such technique like that, can be used for NBM if we speak about um, handling uh, the computation time and maybe figuring out maybe the most significant parts of the the material we have to consider? Is this something could happen in NBM?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, I think there's kind of an, uh, like a few ways that you can kind of reduce the computational cost of npm so of course you know you're only going to want to simulate the exact uh, portion of the material that you want dynamics from so like in something like let's just sit, use major motion pictures as an example something like frozen where the characters are walking through the snow the snow is only modeled like directly where their feet are You know, it's not like you can reduce cost by really being clever with what parts you're actually simulating and then kind of creating an illusion uh, outside of that area. But at the same time, there's been a lot of efforts lately to speed up MPM. And so I think maybe two years ago was the first GPU MPM paper out of our group. And then this year's SIGGRAPH, we actually have a multi GPU MPM algorithm that is really impressively fast and running, you know, tens of millions of particles pretty quickly, comparatively. Um, But yeah, I think, uh, oh, but also an exciting part of MPM, the community, is that there's also this um, programming language called Tai Chi that um, came out a few years ago. And that's been really exciting because it also kind of is a really nice entry point for people to MPM because it has a Python API, so you're coding in Python but it's doing all of this, like, incredible optimization under the hood, because it's really kind of a compiler um, underneath the Python API. And it allows you to write, um, like, a full NPM simulation in, I think they advertise 88 lines of code. (laughs) So it's pretty incredible how much work has gone into optimizing this, because it is notoriously uh, computationally intensive. Um, And, you know, a lot of what I do is running simulations in parallel, and then trying to work on other things while I'm waiting for the results on that, you know, because it can be pretty arduously slow at times.
0: So maybe I'm curious to ask you, maybe misconception about material and method, maybe student first time maybe hear about material and method, and what could be misconception uh, or clarification you you want to say about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'd say there's probably two main misconceptions about MPM, and the first being that it's super good at everything. It's not super good at everything. <laughs> it's, um, it's got significant limita- limitations, um, and when you first learn about it and see what it can do, it sort of seems like this infallible, um, oh, we can do phase change and foam and elasticity and plasticity it could do everything but again it does have that um pretty big issue with strong discontinuities um and then you know the limitations on explicit MPM time stepping and whatnot like fbm does afford us some other nice things that could make it a better option sometimes but i would also say that another big uh, misconception about MPM is that it's impossibly hard to learn um, and I did find it, as I mentioned, incredibly intimidating at first, and I admittedly still struggle through some of the underlying math and physics and whatnot, but there are more and more tools out there that are making it more accessible, like Tai Chi, like I just mentioned. Yeah. Um, and so it's really kind of, I feel like there's a lot of work that's gone into making it more accessible, and I'd really love to see more people working with MPM, because I think the perceived difficulty is really one of the greatest walls to the community growing
0: I think also, if you can tell us about in soft robotics, because we have the um, maybe the concept of designing multi material with different mechanical properties and the spectrum of compliances material. So, I think that's a challenging still, and maybe in in FEM, just to consider the interface between different material. Uh, in NPM, if you can ex- give an example, how you can execute multi material modeling in. Uh, Simulating in MPM.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the I think that's one of the most exciting parts about MPM is the multi-material um, interaction that you get from it. So you can simulate um, fluid and solid interaction um, pretty much for free. Although that contact does, um, there's some trickiness because there's some like artificial stickiness of particles that you can get in MPM due to that blending again that you're doing um, to and from the grid. So. To avoid that kind of stickiness we actually have oh so like for example there's a paper from our group this year in um on uh contact and actually enabling us to have um really nice uh yeah it's so exciting because of the you know we can do fluids and solids and gases and anything all in the same simulation
0: yeah i mean uh... we also challenge jobs about uh, if we speak about uh... Maybe soft material with different mechanical properties. If we have a compliant and stiff material with different Young models, maybe in stiffnesses, and that's also challenging to an FEM to simulate. Yeah. sometimes.
1: oh, so. I see. Okay, well, that's even more exciting because I feel like uh, having you know multiple solids uh, all simulated in one simulation that's easy peasy. Like, MPM can do that um, no problem because you get that contact for free. Um, and you know, every set of particles can have different properties and yeah, you can have like a super soft jello cube in the same simulation as you have a super stiff, um, I don't know, like a boundary that you're simulating with particles still. Um, so like, for example, if you wanted to simulate like a bullet going through, um, like one of my demos is that a bullet going through like a jello, like little figurine of a T-Rex, and Mm -hmm. we model that um, bullet using really, really high stiffness um, particles, but the uh, jello material is much softer and you get that interaction for free pretty much in NPM. But of course there are kind of some tricky things. So like for example, those super stiff particles used for the bullet are going to slow down the whole simulation (laughs) because you have to use the same time step or you're going to get like inconsistencies in your dynamics. So you really do have to your time step is gonna be limited by the most stiff material that you're
0: modeling. Okay. And maybe I'm curious to about the nonlinearities in the material. Because when I speak about material with high most of soft materials sometimes, especially smart material has nonlinearities. Do you think that's something important for you to consider nonlinearities in the material itself as a property or maybe as a structure itself? Is this something you think it's interesting to be simulate?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, one of the interesting things is we kind of have an option between using like linear elastic models and nonlinear elastic models. Mm -hmm. And in um, MPM, at least in my experience, I've pretty much only used nonlinear like elastic models. So, we use um, there's like kind of a selection of constitutive models that we like to select from. So, we use like Neo Hookian um, elastic potential or Saint Venant Kirchhoff or fixed co-rotated, and each of them has like kind of different nice properties to them in modeling nonlinear elasticity. Um, and then, of course, plasticity is also extremely nonlinear, um, and so that whole realm is kind of hinging on the yield surfaces we can develop. Um, so I'd say that nonlinearity really comes from our understanding of the physics. So we're not. I don't think the MPM community is necessarily going out of its way developing like new nonlinear constitutive models. But the cool thing is, we can take what we understand of nonlinear materials from material science and manufacturing and engineering and all that, and just plug it right into MPM and be simulating this nonlinear behavior.
0: And maybe I going to ask you why modeling is so challenging. I think that's a question. I think in general, why do you think modeling is so challenging, even before you're starting in, in a simulation? You wanted to model it, maybe a new material with new properties why do you think modeling is so challenging and maybe what are the missing pieces do you think when you consider replicating either by inspiration from the nature in your simulation what are the missing pieces uh, do you think
1: yeah i mean i think one of the most interesting things to me and that i sometimes get stressed out thinking about is just all of the underlying Kind of microscale um, interactions that we can't even really even begin to model with MPM, at least not yet. Um, So that kind of like small scale, you know, heterogeneous heterogeneous material structures like that can be um, an interesting underlying difficulty in modeling a material. So like for example, you might want to model if you're really doing some like intense material science modeling with something like MPM you might want to have a model that actually introduces like imperfections in the material. So we're actually modeling something that's not like perfectly uniform. And another uh, real difficulty in uh, modeling in, uh, uh, in MPM specifically is actually um, particle distribution. And so we want our particles to be uh, distributed in a really kind of specific way. We don't want them to be uniformly in a grid. We don't want them to be necessarily uniform in really any way, but we do really want to maintain um, certain properties. Like we want to maintain the number of particles that are going to get mapped to like one grid cell, because that can really, really affect the performance. Um, if you have like one particle mapping to a grid cell or something like that, that can really um, cause some bizarre behavior, um, and <laughs> even contribute to that numerical stickiness that I mentioned. Um, So I think that, yeah, in my mind, really the biggest difficulty, because we can, you know, we can do uh, macro scale experiments to test different materials, but it's that micro scale that I feel like is really difficult in the imperfections of materials. Um, And, you know, glass shatters, like, based on those imperfections, right? It'll shatter, like, kind of, there, there are, like, seed cracks already in glass, and they fracture based on that. Um, so I think that's a real difficulty to really getting that physically accurate modeling.
0: Indeed, yeah, and I think maybe here's also a question about how we can gap simulation and real. I think that's a question almost we ask uh, in, in each episode about how we can close the gap between simulation and reality. So at least you you have a converged r- result maybe, but yeah, it's sometimes it's tricky. But do you see how we can uh, close the gap? between both of them?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I really think that the biggest uh, way to do that is the intersectionality of different disciplines coming together. Uh, You know, I think the best and most exciting MPM works that I've seen are ones that have not only simulation researchers on them but also you know just in my realm, like for example, cryoscience experts that can really inform that we're modeling these materials in a physically realistic way. Um, yeah, I think the I think really it's gonna come down to interdisciplinary collaboration to make simulation more of a reality. Um, at the same time you probably do want some people that have like some art direction ideas to make things maybe because sometimes the weirdest thing is that when you simulate something very physically accurate sometimes it doesn't look maybe the way you expect it because it doesn't quite meet your visual heuristic for what you're looking at even though it might be more physically accurate um so maybe you want to add additional effects you know some like additional debris or something that might not be physically realistic but um might look better so i guess it again it comes down to what context you're wanting it for you know if you want a simulation so real that you believe it's real versus a simulation that's so real that you can use it to model real world things um so yeah it's tricky but it's such an exciting direction i yeah i see this question a lot and you know Simulation's really, really moving quite fast um, in a couple, I mean, a lot of realms, but we're not near real-time simulation of...
0: Yeah, I think maybe there's a question here about what is an area or direction of research you think is very promising, but the community seems disagree or doesn't get much attention. You can answer uh. both perspective, maybe an MBM community, and maybe if we are about, about soft robotics field in simulation.
1: Yeah, so I think this is, I, yeah, I have definitely an idea about this. And I think it probably applies to both simulation and soft robotics. Um, so it's the uh, kind of the way that machine learning is starting to enter all of these different spheres of science. Um, and I think machine learning is a really, really exciting tool. Um, and I think it definitely has a place in probably just about every area of science. But I think the trickiest thing is that it really presents us with like a set of hammers, um, you know, to solve different problems. It's like tools to solve problems. But the biggest difficulty to my in my mind uh, to successful machine learning is figuring out what nails, what problems you want to solve, you know, what can you solve? And you kind of also have to ask the question of do we care about Understanding what's going on inside this black box, or do we just like that it comes out with something good, you know? And I think that there, it's people are pretty split on machine learning in simulation, but we're seeing a lot more research come out, um, you know, using machine learning uh, to try and actually predict larger time steps, for example, um, so you can actually simulate something uh, with large time steps without losing um, that CFL condition and like having particles explode on you. So it's pretty exciting, uh, the potential, but I also think that it's tricky because it's so easy to want to just throw it at every problem you have, you know, but it really, it's such a precise tool and doing machine learning research is such an art. And I think that it, um, I think in 10 years, it's going to be in every realm of science. And I, I mean, I'm sure in robotics, it's already well up there. Um, but in simulation, it's kind of like slowly inching its way in.
0: And do you think we can maybe merge FAM technique with MBM for maybe understanding? Uh, you mentioned example of artificial intelligence maybe helpful in a certain way that you mentioned. But do you see maybe merging both of them? FEM and NBM.
1: Yeah, MPM and FEM. Yeah. And I think that um, this has kind of been attempted even in Fracture. So trying to get some of the nice properties you get from um, MPM with FEM Fracture. Um, I haven't really dabbled in it myself because I'm, I'm actually really just not as familiar with FEM and I haven't used it as much. Um, but I'm really excited by, you know, having that mesh and having kind of some properties that you get from that. Um, so I think that there's real potential for that, and then yeah, maybe even machine learning could be a really good tool to stitch that gap. But again, it's kind of like, do we also want to do we want to understand how we're <laughs> mapping between these things? Um, yeah. And there's probably a lot of um, engineering hackiness that you'd have to inject to kind of keep maintain consistency between an MPM simulation and an FEM simulation, um, yeah. especially because in MPM you don't have really any explicit Representation of the surface of the material at all, um, which is really arguably the trickiest thing in MPM modeling, especially because you know at the end of the day we want to be able to render these things, um, and if you have even if your particles look really good, it could come out looking kind of bad when you try and like mesh them into a surface. Like for example, we use um, uh, this thing called OpenVDB, which was developed by DreamWorks, I believe, um, and that's actually a method for using level sets. Uh, and you can use uh, OpenVDB directly in tools like Houdini. And so what we do is we use that kind of um, functionality to actually mesh the particles. Um, but the, the tricky thing is we want to preserve the intricate details of the fractures. But we also want to make sure that the surfaces elsewhere are smooth. So if you, you're smoothing over um, the surfaces, you're losing some of that fracture detail. So it's kind of a trade-off. Um, Whereas with something like FEM, you explicitly have those surfaces and you explicitly have those crack surfaces so you can render things really nicely. Um, But thankfully there are actually some like new things like at last year's SCA, there was a nice meshing algorithm that we actually adopted for our NISO-MPM paper. And it enabled us to actually render, I think some like pretty excitingly realistic demos with less particles than last year. Um, which made it faster. And I think the services look better than last year too.
0: That's interesting, yeah. I think here's also a question from the audience asking about application and computer graphics can get away with subbar accuracy, but accuracy is very important for real-world application engineering. What is the accuracy and computational cost of NPM when compared to FM. I think we we covered part of that but you can also answer again, yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think um I really think that MPM can be just about as accurate as you want to make it. I think it's extremely applicable to real world situations. Um, you know, I know I keep coming back to the avalanche and um, geomaterial like landslide, gravitational hazard application. That's just so big to me though. Like to be able to actually real world Uh, model these physical effects that otherwise are just kind of they feel intractable you know there's so much going on in these um, dynamic um, events and how do we model these large-scale interactions but MPM really affords us um, some exciting accuracy Um, of course the trade-off being um, maybe it's slower performance or whatnot Um, but and yeah with like large-scale simulation you're going to hit tens of millions of particles, and that's going to yeah. slow you down, too. <laughs> but um, I think it's really, I think it, uh, I would say that NPM actually probably is much more, uh, has seen a lot more research outside of graphics. Um, we see a lot of NPM works from engineering and um, are very inspired by the things that people have done with it in the engineering community.
0: Great. I think maybe also maybe I'm curious to ask you, were there any direction you thought would work out very well? That maybe simulation, maybe surprising, was surprising, or you didn't expect that. Do you have any kind of scenario like that?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's sort of just, unfortunately, the nature of research. You have to, you know, you go down one path really excited about it, and maybe, maybe far down the line, you're like, oh, this isn't working so well. I remember one of the things I tried early on in my time as a PhD student was actually applying um this thing called power diagrams tried applying it to solids um and we couldn't really make it work I remember that being kind of disappointing but it was it was a good foot in the door of having to really dedicate down one path and be excited about it and passionate about it and then all of a sudden it just stops dead and you have to you have to walk away from it because you know it's like not you know you're not going anywhere with it so that's difficult um but thankfully Uh, In terms of my fracture work, I feel like for the most part, uh, the paths that I've gone down have seemed pretty um, lucrative early on. Um, And a lot of that is because we're so inspired by the engineering literature. So we're starting from kind of a good baseline of something that we know is going to work. And I think sometimes that's a really smart way to (laughs) make your research a little bit faster is um be starting from a baseline that you're confident in and you're not worried about the underlying um Mm. you know problems that could be in that um but i think yeah i think research is just always going to be filled with that experience um going down a path and having to say goodbye to it and just you just have to move on
0: yeah that's uh, tricky Yeah, I think maybe there's a question also related to here about do you think learning theory and proofs can give insights to MBM approaches? Or do you believe our mathematical machinery just isn't potent enough to handle the complicated nature of nonlinear material? If you can maybe stress again about what you think about this uh, question.
1: Yeah, so that's, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We really do directly... Um, take from theory and governing equations and our understanding of physics. Um, mm-hmm. So that really gives a lot of insight to NPM approaches. I mean effectively, NPM researches finding governing equations and discretizing them in NPM and you know, allowing this additional augmentation to model some new physical um, capability. So like maybe a material adding like a heat equation solve can allow a material to undergo phase change. Um, and like actually melt in real time so I think that yeah I think that learning like I think that if you come from a math background or come from a physics background MPM is going to be your cup of tea because it's there's a lot um, that I think helps you in your understanding and helps in your intuition Um, yeah absolutely
0: maybe the question also may uh, resonate with many students how we can simulate human intelligence because i think like gbts3 and that's it's so much challenging to simulate like human brain intelligence do you think that something can be done one day in mbm
1: oh in mpm oh i don't know that's so interesting yeah i've never even thought about applying mpm to like neurology and whatnot i feel like machine learning is probably much more down that path um at this point but something like mpm yeah, I don't know. I haven't really seen a lot of chemical and biological um, types of simulation in NPM. So maybe not in NPM, but I feel like um, human intelligence is something that we'll see in, in yeah. the future.
0: So we are closing this end. We have a few questions. How we can ensure uh, inclusive culture around combative ideas? So now we have FEM technique and NPM And let's be honest, sometimes MBMs don't really have a focus about uh, exploration. So how do you see this competition between different techniques, approaches uh, in the field? How we can be more intellectually inclusive around competitive approaches?
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that as researchers, you have to keep your mind open no matter what. I feel like that's the bottom line for research and the sciences and it's an it's an open-mindedness and a natural curiosity um and yeah I mean I'm I never feel like I know enough to say oh some method is not worth it and I can't imagine getting to a point where I'd want to totally um just throw out one entire area you know it's tempting you know when you're talking about oh the um, how MPM's is so great to simultaneously kind of talk down FEM but in truth I feel like uh, to solve the problems you want to solve you got to look everywhere you can and to um, I don't know to shut out any one direction or any one perspective is never going to build mm-hmm. you up so I feel like I feel very strongly about inclusivity on perspectives on techniques um, I feel like science I think everyone's perspective has a place in science, and I think uh, more than anything, I just want to see progress. You know, I like—I don't like to feel like science is competitive or it's um, kind of cutthroat. I know there's a lot of kind of atmosphere of competition and publish or perish, et cetera. Um, but I really love um, collaboration and I love interdisciplinary collaboration.
0: I think that's interesting, but I'm, I'm curious also to ask you about Publish or Perish as well, because I feel for your work you, you have the passion and that's so clear in your work. But Thank if you. if we speak about Publish and Perish, how do you see is this like you struggle with that or how you, you can overcome this pressure to publish?
1: Absolutely. Um, you know, I'm still a PhD student, so my perspective is going to be very much through that lens. Um, But yeah, there's absolutely um, kind of an atmosphere of, you know, you've got to publish X number in X number of papers in X journal, or, you know, a journal of this uh, ranking, etc. Yeah, I don't feel like it does any good. I, I feel like, you know, researchers, for the most part, in my experience, are passionate enough to be driven to do these, um, works as, like, a labor of love, you know, Mm -hmm. it's a curiosity, and that's, that's really what I'm driven by, in, like, in, for example, in the project I'm working on right now, I, um, you know, I, I feel very confident that I could probably graduate even if it didn't work out, but I still, I'm just, I just feel so much pressure internally to do it because I just love it, you know, I wanna, this is, like, an exciting opportunity for me to just, um, do something exciting to me and uh, share it with the world and contribute to furthering our understanding of some area of science. You know, so yeah, I think publisher, I think it's so, it's an unfortunate byproduct of academia. Um,
0: I think that you're right about the incentive. How how you define the incentive? Is it incentive about being passionate and you have to feel the pressure? You want to know more and dig deeper. And that's internal incentive, incentive to be incentive, that, that incentive from you, your, your side. Em. But it's scary when you really passionate, that's a very complex topic and takes time and you have yeah. to come up with solution. And, and that's, that's uh, scary. And I don't know if you maybe in, in the future, do you have any solution for that? Do you imagine how you can make the project driven from the out of passion? I
1: I really think it comes down to finding something you're excited about, finding a question you're passionate about, because then no matter how hard it is, you know, you can be driven by the excitement that you're going to have something on the other end of it. Um, But yeah, absolutely. I think there's a really kind of stressful trade-off between the pressure of yearly um, deadlines and kind of crunch periods that people go through to meet them um, and it's its really unfortunate to me because scientific progress, you know, I mean, everyone in science knows that this stuff doesn't happen overnight, and you know, to really bang your head against a problem, that can take God, it can take two weeks to just solve one bug, you know, it can be anything. And to, I think it's so unfortunate that we're so beholden to deadlines, and you know, I don't really have a, necessarily a great um, solution. To that problem, but
0: and, and do you think ego is important for the researcher? Uh, ego,
1: yeah, I mean, I think it's important for researchers to be humble. I, I personally, I just can't, I don't really vibe well with people who come off as really haughty or um, yeah. f- act like they know everything. I don't know, just because science is like we're all in the same boat of trying to learn these things and further our understanding of things and. The natural curiosity I have just makes me feel like I don't know anything, you know, I would just want to learn as much as I can and I don't feel like I'm ever going to feel like I'm at a point where I'm done learning. And I think that that I think that treating learning as a lifetime um, thing is really special for and that's I think that's something that makes a good researcher is a natural passion for um, and just curiosity, you know,
0: I can't agree more with that. And is there any book that inspired you?
1: Yeah, so over the yeah in the last few years, um, I read a book called Blood Sweat and Pixels by Jason Schreier, which actually goes into the this is a little bit of a maybe tangent, but goes into the wild development struggles in making video games, and games are kind of this really interesting intersection of art and technology. So it was really exciting to see how these like titanic pieces of software are made. Yeah, also the bureaucracy that goes into it and the butting of heads between corporate interests and artists and developers. It was just really cool stuff. And I actually um, really kind of wanted to get into game development. That's why I picked that book up a few years ago. Um, And I dabbled a little in teaching myself um, Unity back in my undergrad years. And maybe I'll keep uh, pursuing that later. But right now I am really loving research.
0: Yeah. And do you think we live in simulation? I think this question, everyone, asking. do you think we live in simulation?
1: Do we live in a simulation? Um... If we do, I want to know what the hell it's running on. (laughs) Um... Uh, I like the idea. So
0: the question is right, do you think we live in simulation? Because maybe people ask this question. Do you think this question is right? Or, n- or maybe, I don't know, what do you think?
1: I mean, I've, I'm sure it's inspired by, you know, the Matrix and that source material. Yeah. I think... Um, n- no, maybe not, but <laughs> I love the idea. And I love the idea of... I, I do sometimes like daydream about reality being kind of like a simulation, but I feel like I'm too quickly overwhelmed by how many little things there would be to simulate, and it's just like, oh, good luck with that. I don't know. <laughs> I don't feel like that's... Ooh, I don't know. As a person in simulation, it's like, I don't know, that's all overwhelmingly um, cool if we are living in a simulation.
0: <laughs> yeah, and if I ask you what maybe the most important quality... You have gained while being working in academia. and I was a PhD student and about to graduate here.
1: Yeah. yeah, I'm. I mean, I've, I think I've learned this through my whole kind of journey, um, in academia, including kind of my undergraduate studies. But yeah, just patience, persistence, and resilience. Um, mm-hmm. Learning to accept and move on from failures, and mm-hmm. honestly, huge. And I already hit on this, but being open-minded to other perspectives. You know, other perspectives, different different people's perspectives, different um, fields perspectives, and just I'm so all about interdisciplinary like collaboration. I love that, and I feel like the meeting of minds and the meeting of minds from different perspectives is so special. And that's how the coolest things are made. I think.
0: Wonderful. And what was the best advice was given to you, was it personally or professionally, and was it life changing?
1: Yeah, I I think I <laughs> I think I tend to get pretty caught up in wanting to you know speed through the journey and get to the destination sometimes and really big picture big picture but yeah, the best advice and as cliche as it may be, but damn, you just got to take things a day at a time. Research is slow, research is hard, research doesn't always go your way and yeah, you just got to be patient and resilient um and also, I really think you have to enjoy the journey or you're not gonna enjoy what you're working on and your, your research will suffer for it if you're not enjoying the journey.
0: And I think that's really wise advice for a lifetime. Yeah. Do you have any final words you would like to say for soft robotics community?
1: Yeah, so uh, <laughs> I hope you had a good time learning more about MPM and simulation. And if you're interested, please just dive right in. So, we've we've open sourced both of my last uh, two NPM works, so CD NPM and NISO NPM. And you can find those on my website at joshuawolper.com. And you can also follow my academic ramblings on Twitter at joshuawolper. And I'd love to interact more with this community. So, yeah, let's collaborate.
0: Thanks, Thanks so much, Josh. It was really a very wonderful and inspiring discussion. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank
1: you so much for having me.